As you find your seats, go ahead and track down a copy of God's Word. Begin to locate the book of Acts. Book of Acts. So, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair somewhere around you. If not, we apologize. There should be some more in the uh, kiosk in uh, the lobby. As always, if you know someone who needs a copy of God's Word or you need one, please take one of those as our uh, gift to you. Acts chapter uh, 2 focused on some familiar verses if you've been around here for a while, verses 42 through 47 this morning. Uh, before we dive in, let me give you a little bit of a heads up about where we're headed uh, in the next few months in God's Word. So starting last week, uh, we have uh, three sort of one-off uh, sermons. Um, so starting last week, three in a row. So we have this week and one more week of sort of one-off sermons. Two weeks from today, we'll start a series, a very short series, in the book of Habakkuk. Okay, so the challenge is to try to find that between now and then, Habakkuk, um, and then we'll have a short series in that. And then after that, there's still another to-be-determined short series that will be decided next week that will come after that that will take us up to July. So it'll take us through the end of June. And if you've been around here for any time, you know that we take a break uh, in the month of July, that the only thing that we do during July is this gathering. Everything else uh, ceases for that uh, month as we try to give everybody some rest and get ready for the new sort of uh, calendar year in ministry kicks off in August. And one of the things that we do during July is have friends in ministry come in and lead us during this time so that uh, all of those that are preaching and leading that do so by vocationally get a little bit of a, a break and a refresher. OK, so that's what's coming over the next few months. Stand alone today, next week, Habakkuk, and then another short series that gets us to the end of June, and then uh, a bunch of great brothers to lead us in God's uh, word. So I think all of those slots are, are filled but one right now, so that's coming together. All right, now for this morning, going to revisit some 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 truths uh, that we do so. I think we, we revisit these on a regular basis in some form, but we're going to talk about the church. We're going to talk about the local church in particular. But maybe make some new connections, at least one new connection this this morning. Uh, so we recently completed the book of Mark, which ends with the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, in one way, we want to continue the story of the resurrection, sort of continue that last week. Kyle did. But uh, Mark, we talked about Mark kind of dropped the mic at the end of his book and said, hey, you've heard the story. You, you've, you've sort of seen it, tasted it, felt it, uh, heard all about it here. Now, what are you going to do uh, with it? And in a way, today we're going to see uh, how the early Christians picked up the mic or picked up the baton and kept running with it. So that's one connection we're going to make. Uh, but uh, second and more, uh, we're going to focus more time making this connection is I want to show you how. Uh, what happens after the baton is picked up? I want to make an attempt to connect the local church that flows from the resurrection. I want to connect it to an idea that I've thrown out there a couple times at the end of Mark called expressive individualism. You need to get uh, accustomed with that term. OK, uh, that is that is the air we breathe, even if it seems foreign to you and you're not 100 percent sure what it is, is the air that you have been breathing for a long time. So we are more shaped 
by this idea than, than we could probably ever identify. Um, but really uh, quick on what that is. Again, we don't have time in a sermon to show all the myriad of ways that expressive individualism uh, expresses itself. Uh, but if you want a, a resource, let me give you one resource to sort of start with on this topic. If you want to dive in, you may write down this book. It's called Strange New World uh, by a guy named Carl Truman. Strange New World. It's actually a condensed version of a larger work that he did. So this one's much more accessible. Uh, so get that book, read it slow, reread it, marinate on it. And I think your eyes will be open to what I'm talking about. And you'll see how this is really everywhere and not just in a few places. So the idea of expressive individualism, it's easier to understand through its slogan than through its slogans than its definition, because a, a precise definition is hard to nail down. But you hear slogans all the time and they, they sort of flow from this. You be you. Uh, you be true to yourself. OK, you you do you in a sense, whatever makes uh, you uh, happy, follow your heart, find yourself, all the different iterations of that. Uh, there's certain marks or tenets of of this that, that help us get our arms around it. And this is some of what I shared uh, at the end of Mark. But it's marked by ideas like the best way to find yourself is to look inward. You are the arbiter of truth. Truth is created in you, and people really can't deny that. It's about your experience, your lived experience. Uh, the highest goal of life is happiness. Humans are inherently good. Forms of external authority are to be rejected. In fact, large-scale structures and institutions are at best suspicious, and at worst, they're evil. Everyone's quest for self-expression is not just to be accepted, it should be celebrated. These are marks or tenets uh, of this. And if you start to think about the implications of that sort of thinking or that viewpoint, you see that it's not only damaging to the church, but even more broadly, it's damaging to any sort of civil society when you start to trace it out. Because unchecked expressive individualism is nothing short of chaos. And it's not just chaos, it's ever-changing, ever-evolving chaos because the terms and the goalposts keep moving. Okay, the, the definitions keep being redefined. Okay, we get to a point where we're redefining redefinitions and then you never know where the parameters are. So, it's just chaos, ever-evolving chaos. But we, among most people, among anybody, we, sh- we should not be hopeless, so I don't want to come off sounding hopeless or create uh, panic and uh, one of the reasons that we have hope, among many of the reasons we have hope, is that we have weapons, or we have a treatment for this, or we have a way to respond to this. And one of the primary ways or weapons that we have, that I, I would sort of sum it up this way, and this is really broad, but I use this in some form all the time, that we, as the people of God, have the Spirit of God who works through the Word of God, to guide, protect, mature, sanctify, whatever you want to say, whatever you want to add to that list, the people of God. So we as the people of God have the Spirit of God who works through the Word of God to guide us, to protect us, to sanctify us, to mature us, okay, to lead us. So we have God's Word and God's Spirit, but to take that one step further, we have something that God designed to house and disseminate God's word, and that's the local church, something that the Apostle Paul calls the pillar and buttress of truth. Okay, the local church is called the pillar and buttress of truth. 
So in so many ways, expressive individualism pushes against health in the church. You just think about those tenets and how that would push against a healthy church. But on the flip side, the local church stands as one of the primary treatments or combatants or weapons against expressive individualism. Here's how one author summed it up. He said, healthy churches unwind the errors of expressive individualism as they leverage the authoritative word of God. In order to preserve our children and church members from the contagion of expressive individualism, we must steadily dispense the antiviral of biblical truth. As church members regularly absorb the redemptive historical storyline of the Bible, the popular social imaginary obsessed with the expressive individual loses more and more sway. Scripture is a story and at its center is not self, but God. So... I think if you dive into the deep end of learning about this uh, and see all the ways that it's manifesting itself or realizing that all of these things that you already see, that they have sort of a reason behind them, um, I, it, it might cause despair, panic, it's confusion. It's like, how in the world are we ever going to combat this? I don't even understand it. So I want us to hear this today. OK, I want us to hear this day. The Lord has given us something. Well in advance of this being the dominant cultural narrative, he's given us both a defensive and offensive weapon to push back. I think in so many ways we're looking for a new means to fight a new problem. But what we need to do is lean into an ancient means to fight that is that is equipped to fight any problem. Okay, so we're leaning. We're looking way back in a sense. And asking ourselves, exhorting ourselves to lean into something ancient, not look for something new. So that's my argument this morning, uh, in a sense. So with that, let's get to the text. We could talk about this stuff all day, but we need to let the word do the work. So this is a text in Acts 2, in these particular verses that we've, uh, that we're going to move fairly quickly because we've covered a number of times. I can point you to a lot of content if you have questions on any of this, but a little bit of context. First, so Acts is the story of the history altering events that flow from the resurrection of Jesus. So Mark, we got life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Other accounts tell us that Jesus stuck around for a little while after his resurrection, made sure that his folks got it. Kyle covered some of that last week. We see on the road to Emmaus, all these people that Jesus was talking to. But he's getting them ready for his departure, his ascension, which we see at the beginning of Acts there in Acts one. But Jesus doesn't just ascend and leave his people alone. He had promised I'm going to send another in the gospel accounts. It's called the comforter. He's called the comforter he sends the Holy Spirit. So we see the Holy Spirit descend in Acts. That's the beginning of Acts two. We have Peter, the the previous coward who had denied Jesus. He preaches one of the first Christian sermons as he's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what does he preach on? Okay, he preaches on Jesus from the Old Testament. So Jesus is the hero of the story there. And then if we know the story, what happens? What every preacher wants to happen. Thousands of people respond and come to faith in Christ. Okay. Thousands come and immediately in what we're about to read, you have the beginning of the church. The life, death and resurrection of Jesus is the catalyst that that creates the church. And the verses that we are about to read shows how this church comes out of the gates. And it's a heck of a start. Okay, it's a heck of a kind of starts on a high point and then it gets messy after that. 
With that, let's read this text and see what the Lord has to say. So picking up in verse 42, the sermon's been preached. People have responded. They've been baptized. And now what are they doing? Verse 42, the word of God. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right. Two sections today and uh, with with a number of points under each section. And this will be on the screen uh, as you go. I'll also give it to you as you go. But first section, a picture of the church. So very simply, a picture of the church from this text. What I want to do under this section is highlight six characteristics that paint a picture of the church here. But a brief qualification that I've given before as we've looked at this at this text, I think Acts six is a easy text. It's an easy text to understand, but it's also an easy text to misuse. And it has been misused in a lot of different ways. This is the start of the church, but it's far from all we have on the church. Some people look at Acts two as if. This is the only thing the Lord gave us on the church. People want to say, if we could just get back to Acts chapter 2. Our problem is we're not living out Acts chapter 2. And in part, I agree with that, but neither did the church in Acts 2 live this way for very long. And I just don't think we're getting a lot of the details. You know, when you come out of the gate, it's kind of like when you first get married. And everything's awesome right at the beginning. But then you start to see where you really disagree and why what this pet peeve is and what that pet peeve is and what happens when I leave something lying around or vice versa. You know, so the disagreements start to come in. So we just don't have all of that. But the Acts church in Acts 2 didn't live like Acts 2 for very long. You get to Acts 5, you got people lying, dropping dead at the offering. Acts 6, you got a certain ethnic group of widows being neglected. Acts 6 introduces a word and a concept that has plagued the church for 2,000 years. And it's the word complaint. The concept of complaint. And what's interesting, the first complaint is in the context of the church growing, of the church rapidly expanding and people are complaining. Okay, It's not in the church struggling. And the issues are just getting started. Maybe you don't think as you read Acts, there's not a ton of issues in Acts. We just need to kind of get back to Acts. But remember, Acts is the story of the planting of a lot of the churches that we have letters written to. Okay. The church in Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus. What about the issues those letters raise? Go read about the church in Corinth. So people want to put a little too much weight on Acts while neglecting the journey that is started here with the local church. So we got a lot more content. It's also worth noting that the church in Acts 2 is led by the apostles. You get myself, two Davids and a Kyle. Don't forget, we get you. All right. So you don't have the apostles. You don't have Peter and John and James. You have us. So with that clarification or qualification, six characteristics that paint a picture of the church that I think are helpful uh, for us. First, we see these early Christians committed in depth, committed in depth. 
Verse 42, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Some translations have uh, they continued steadfastly. And then we see we, we see four things that Luke, the author here, puts that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers. And we're not just going to focus on those four things, but these are put forward in the original language here like these are non-negotiables. So I'm not sure which translation, English translation you're using, but you should have a little word, the, at the beginning of all of these, showing some formality to each one of them. Uh, The language implies they kept coming back to them, the apostles teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. And we'll hit on these more as we go, but I want to make make clear in this, uh, I want to make clear right now is that there is an initial depth that they come out of the starting gates with. And this, this is a key aspect that you've kind of got to pull with you through this entire text. These were new believers, all new believers at this point, other than those that are leading the church. So we try and set the bar pretty low for new folks in the church, for new believers, and we try to set the bar pretty low for existing, even mature believers as they come into the church. But here you have thousands of new members who are all new believers who are devoting themselves to all of this in a certain level, certain amount of depth, a certain level of commitment. Day one, one author said this, he said, growth in commitment is good, but growth into commitment is unbiblical. I'm not arguing that we may, this is what he's saying, I'm not arguing that we make all our commitment to a local church up front, but there should be a significant commitment up front. And that runs totally contrary to most church strategies, church growth, books about how to grow the church. We set the expectations low from the beginning because we're trying to sell consumers a product. You dive in, you read that book, Strange New World, you'll hear about how expressive individualism has fed this consumer mentality in the church. So I would argue that because we set the bar low to cater to expressive individualism in this way, we are intentionally or unintentionally catering to people's desires when we do that. I just kind of want to fill things out, don't want to do too much, so we're catering to their desire. And I really want you to serve me. But here's the deal. The New Testament does not treat New Test, uh, Christians as consumers who need to be providers as they mature. Instead, it assumes that all Christians are providers in some form. The New Testament assumes that all Christians commit deeply to a local church in ways that are meaningful, sometimes painful, and certainly sacrificial. Hey, that's, that's not my assumption. That's the assumption of the New Testament. I think the New Testament assumes that people ask, how can I serve rather than what's in it for me? So don't miss it here. 3,000 professed faith, baptized in the church, and immediately devoted themselves to the church. Volunteer recruitment, probably an issue in Corinth later, but didn't seem to be an issue right here. But I'm not really sure what all ministries they're doing. So that's the first characteristic we see is depth of commitment. And it's not hard to see that a depth of commitment to something like the church is antithetical to the current cultural narrative. Okay. Number two, in the remaining points, just flesh out the first point. Second, we see that they were devoted to doctrine, devoted to doctrine. Again, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. Okay. 
The apostles' teaching would include all that the apostles had received from Christ. They end up writing down, it's based on their eyewitness account, what Jesus poured into them during that time, uh, including how to properly understand the Old Testament. We could just sum it up at this point, though it wasn't packaged in this form. We could say they're, they're looking at the Bible. They're devoted to the Bible that's being disseminated through the apostles' teaching at that point. So these new believers, new believers, this church... They were devoted to God's word together. Just think about it. What what command is fresh on the apostles mind as they were passing this on? Great commission. It's one of the last things they heard. And what did that include? Make disciples. OK. Teaching them to observe, observe all that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus had told these men. That's what they're doing. You make disciples and you teach them to observe everything I have commanded you. The apostles knew that God's word was the primary agent that the Holy Spirit would use to transform people into the image of Christ. Not just save them, but shape them into the image of Christ. And that has not changed. Two thousand years later, that has not changed. The the primary means that the Spirit of God uses is the word of God. The word is essential and non-negotiable in the church. That's why it is so prominent in the preaching. That's why it drives the song. That's why we pray the word. I didn't know what Becca was going to pray today. And I'm grateful and humbled that she prayed for elders and for the men of the church. But did you hear what she prayed? She prayed the word. It's pretty simple. Okay, the word is essential and non-negotiable to the church. And this word and God commands, God's commands and God's plan and God's design It's not opposed to our happiness and our flourishing, but it runs completely contrary to the notion that truth comes from within. We are not the arbiters of truth. Jesus is. God is. Our desires are not ultimate. and They're not to be celebrated no matter what. What God desires is ultimate, and it's to be celebrated. Here's a truth put way too simply. The less of this word we get the more easily something like expressive individualism will dominate. The less of this word we get, the more easily something like expressive individualism will dominate. The world is screaming at us, love yourself and force others to love you no matter what. The word is preaching love God and love others as you love yourself. And it clearly defines what those things mean. A lack of devotion to sound doctrine will engender a growing devotion to false doctrine. Okay. We don't live in a day where we need more, uh, less Bible, but more. Next characteristic, number three, they were desperate in praying. Desperate in praying. The end of verse 42, they were devoted to the prayers. Again, that the there probably points to some specific formal prayers. However, this is probably much broader. Verse 47 talks about them praising God as they gathered in homes. We see throughout Acts that that prayer was an essential part of the Christian life and the life of the church. Acts 4, they're praising God in prayer. Acts 6, we see leaders devoted to prayer. Acts 13, you have the church praying before whatever the Spirit does uh, to set set apart Paul and Barnabas, to send them on their way. What you see throughout Acts is an utter dependence on God in prayer Throughout the life of the church. Jesus had modeled that. He taught that to the disciples. They're just carrying that on. Look at what 
Look at what Peter records in verse 43. All those supernatural things happening and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You see that over and over throughout the book of Acts. And you have to know that prayer precedes every major movement in the book of Acts. They're praying and things happen. It's the convicting gut check reality for the church in our day. We will do nothing but waste our energy in religious activity apart from desperate prayer for God to do something. It's just religious activity. Are we ever willing to attribute our struggles in part to a lack of prayer? Not not meaning that if we just pray, struggles are over. But are we ever willing to admit that a lack of prayer will lead to struggles? I've read this quote before. Samuel Chadwick said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toy, mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. So I'll be the first to admit that the new dominant cultural narrative, this expressive individualism, all the ways it's being revealed once you see it, it's 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 frightening. It's concerning. It's daunting. It's confusing. It's hard. It's hard to explain this stuff to kids, much less have to interact with people that are embracing it and try to convince them otherwise. There's so many difficulties about it. And if we think that we will even comprehend how to respond, much, actually, much, much less actually respond apart from prayer and desperate prayer, then we are significantly shorting ourselves. It's, if we think that we're going to, in a sense, battle against expressive individualism and not pray, it's like being on the front lines of the war and having infinite resources at the base and never calling for reinforcements. That's what it's like when we go forward in a lack of prayer. Okay, these new believers in this new church were desperate in praying and God was doing things. Next characteristic, they were sacrificial in living. Okay, this one this one encompasses two pieces really. Uh, you might say they were selfless in how they lived. And then generous in how they gave. Okay, They were selfless in their living and generous in their giving. And this is verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And all things in common. Which is what happens when you have communities centered on the gospel, they start to have God given interest. Okay, they don't all become the same. All the, actually all the diversity in the body begins to be celebrated because they find common interest around the gospel and not other things. They find common interest around the word of God and what's important in the word and then you can celebrate diversity in the midst of that. A healthy church develops common values and common interests that flow from the word. Not from anything else. And all of this takes all of us becoming more selfless. Okay? This entails that we all stop thinking about ourselves so much. Pride and selfishness stifles the Christian life and growth in the church. Okay? Think about it. Expressive individualism makes life all about you. 
The church cannot flourish when that dominates our attitudes. The culture is saying that what you desire is best and your preferences win. The church is where God's desires are best and my preferences are secondary. You see how mutually opposed those things are? These new believers were selfless in the way they lived, which led to them being sacrificial in how they gave, which, you know, in our culture, that kind of bothers us a little bit. We don't like to talk about money. Don't go too deep in my finances. We like our stuff. We like our money. and We don't like being told what to do with it. But we need to be clear. Acts 2, there's not some sort of Christian communism here where you just sell everything, give it to the church, and then somebody in the context of the church just equally divvies it up among everybody else. People still had homes. They are willingly selling possessions and giving them away. This is not forced giving. You don't see anything about it. This is voluntary, joy-filled, sacrificial giving. This is the people so committed To one another that they are willing to leverage everything they had to meet needs. That's how committed they are to one another. That's a radical reorientation of how we view money and possessions. Again, new Christians responding to what God has done in their lives. Open handedness with resources. They were selfless in living and sacrificial in giving. They were not finding happiness through selfishness with their lives and their resources. They were finding happiness through selflessness with their lives and their resources. Here's the truth we all have to embrace. When it comes to the church, we need to embrace this and realize it's for our good. It doesn't sound like it's very good. But when we give ourselves to the church in the way that God calls us to, here's what we can expect. Less money, less time, In certain ways, added sorrow. We can expect less money, less time, added added sorrow in so many ways. You think about bearing burdens. That would add sorrow to us as we take it off others. But with that comes increased joy, clarity of purpose, a family, so many other things. We need to embrace that. Understand that. that If we give ourselves to the church in the way that God has designed, that's what we end up with. How's that for a sales pitch? I want you to go out this week and I want you to tell your neighbors and your coworkers, do you, would you like less money? How about less time? You're busy, right? How about I take some more of that time? How about I add some sorrow to your life? But I will give you something so much better in return. Okay. We'll see if that works. Two more characteristics. Next, they were dedicated to gathering. It's all over the text. Saturated with it. Verse 42, devoted to the fellowship. Verse 44, all who believe were together. Verse 46, day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. Plural pronoun all over this text. They loved one another and they spent a lot of time together. You have that word fellowship there. It's kind of been hijacked. Don't really understand what it means, the way we use it. It's not just a social activity. It's not just about bringing food and eating together. Fellowship is what happens when people are experiencing the grace and the mercy of God together. They begin to authentically share their experience of God together. It's a think about it like this. Fellowship in so many ways is a gospel partnership, a gospel journey together, a deep, intimate, affectionate bond that is created by God and centered on God. So it's more 
than just spending time together in an event, at an event, though it's not less than that. It's just more than that. So this group did life together. I love the part in the middle of verse 46. They're breaking bread in their homes. So you got two breaking of bread, verse 42 and verse 46, and there's debate about what one is and versus the other. I follow the camp that verse 42 is talking about the Lord's Supper, which we get to do today, mainly because of that word, the, the breaking of bread. You get into verse 46, the the is not there. So that breaking of bread is different, more in line with they got together, fired up the grill, broke out the cornhole game, had a good time in a way that honored the Lord. Okay. Text says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And that's just one way these folks were gathered. They gathered for worship. They gathered for study. They gathered to hang out. They just did life together. Here's one of the many points that you could be, you could make on this. Everything I've said before this, every point that we've looked at before this is going to suffer if you don't gather. Okay. Everything leading up to this that you see on that screen that gets down to dedicated, every bit of that is going to suffer if you don't gather. The less you are with others, the more life becomes about you. Okay. The less you are with others, the more life come, becomes about you. It's hard if you're never around others to really think about them and, and, and live sacrificially for them because you just, you're not there. You're not in their lives. Okay? The less you're around others, the more life will become about you. Last characteristic, they were zealous in spreading. Verse 47 says they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it's not just an inward community. It's an outward community as well. Okay? They were obviously out and about letting people know about what God was doing in their midst. They were making the gospel known to their neighbors, their co-workers, their friends. They were living out the gospel in the area in which they live. So Peter opened his mouth, shared the gospel. They came to Christ. They're now doing the same. And amazingly, God is saving people. He's adding to their community. All of this internal stuff, committed in depth, Devoted to doctrine, desperate in praying, sacrificial in living, dedicated to gathering. All of that inward stuff was overflowing out into the community. There was a, there was an attractive lifestyle. Even if it was an odd and weird and confusing lifestyle, it was attractive and the Lord was saving people through that. One of the things, if you dive in and learn more about expressive individualism, you will see how it is wrecking so many lives. And God has given us the opportunity, if we'll lean into it, to show the world a place, a home where people care, where where people who are not like you will love you, where truth exists that may be hard to hear, but leads to your eternal good and not just your earthly pleasure. God has given us a chance to be Maybe a hospital for the hurting or a family for the lonely. People need to both hear and see the gospel in the church. So disciple making and specifically evangelism is a fundamental aspect of what it means to be the church. These are new believers, new believers. And this is just descriptive of who they are and what they were about. Showing and sharing the gospel. And the Lord was working through that faithfulness. Just showing and sharing the gospel. 
Okay. We, we could spend a lot more time on each of those, but take that picture. Okay, keep that picture in your mind. A church that is committed in depth, devoted to doctrine, desperate in praying, sacrificial in living, dedicated to gathering, and zealous in spreading. And let's take that picture and begin to put together a description of the cure, as I'm calling it. A cure being a treatment. Okay, a description of the cure. And this goes back, again, the church is a weapon against expressive individualism. I mean, it pushes against it in every form. They are literally, this viewpoint and the church are, are battling against one another. Okay, One trying to trump the other. Okay, But this, it's going to require us, if we're actually going to lean into this, we've got to pick up the mic, pick up the baton that Mark dropped for us, and we can't just read about the way the early church did it. We've got to do it ourselves. So on a corporate level, how do we leverage the weapon God has given us in the church? And this is by no means the only weapon he's given us to fight against this, but on a corporate level, this will make a significant difference. So five responses in light of what we see in this text. First, and some of these are just like, you know, kind of duh, kind of, uh, uh, exhortations, but first we are to assemble together. Okay. Scripture could not be clearer about the fundamental responsibility we have as members of a local church to assemble together. Okay, we've looked at the Hebrews 10 text, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day is drawing near. Basic fact is that if churches don't assemble, then there's no church. Okay? The very word points at gathering. Okay? The church doesn't assemble, there's no church. Gathering together in Jesus' name is one of the things that makes a church a church. This type of gathering in particular must be a priority for every member of any church. Okay? So what, this, is, this is like... 101, like cannot neglect the corporate gathering of the church. And we can so easily neglect it. So easily put other things ahead of this. We elevate so many things in our culture. It's so easily to look inward at what we think is best instead of looking at what God has said is best. It's so easy to just sort of manifest Reasons in our mind why this is to, to take priority over what God has said is to take priority. God wired gathering okay, into the fabric of who we are. God wired the need for gathering into the fabric of who we are. We need to be warned when we neglect to gather together, as is the habit of some, as the author of Hebrews is saying, it is a habit that is hard to break. I was speaking with someone this week, not a member of this church, and they were talking about I was I did not provoke this, but they were talking about how the new and regular use of technology to supplement your physical body being at a gathering is proving detrimental to the church. This was just their viewpoint. Okay, they're in an industry that gets to see the collapse of churches through through the sale of buildings. And they were just talking about all these churches that are collapsing because everybody left and they can he even talked about himself. He said, yeah, I can just sit at home. It's just a lot easier. You know, I'm a little tired. I want to go. So I'm just going to pop it on, turn it on. No big deal. Okay. There was a concession okay, with a pandemic that we were all responding to and didn't know what to do in a lot of ways. But you cannot get around embodied gathering, the body being present, we being together. So um, 
When we don't gather, we are missing more than we realize. So the, the gathering, think about it. The gathering of the church is not a, not a project of pastors, okay? It's a means of grace that God has given us. This is not just some thing that pastors came up with. It's a means of grace that God has given us, okay? The gathering is meant to be a foretaste of heaven. It's a ballast for the present. After a week of feeling alone, you can be reminded through God's word that you are not alone. You can be reminded by God's people that you are not alone. After a week of facing criticism or hurtful things, you can hear about how much God loves you and that there are others that want to support you. After a week of studying expressive individualism and being confused and concerned, you can come back and hear that God is sovereign and he's in control and he's good. He's not asleep at the wheel. Hard to overstate how a lack of commitment to the most basic things in the Christian life will stunt your growth and prove detrimental to the health of the church. I've said before, this is where the plays are called. This is where the plays are called. And unfortunately, too many Christians never get in the huddle. And they don't know what play they're running. Again, just note how prevalent gathering is in this text. It's all over it. The early church gathered, and that fact affected everything. It, it affected the depth of their commitment, the depth of their the devotion to the doctrine and praying and sacrifice for others and how they shared and protected the gospel. All of that is hindered by no gathering or a lack of, of gathering. All of that is hindered. Expressive individualism says you do what's best for you. You want to fight against that? Then commit to getting together. With other Christians. Respond to the culture. Not by assembling less. But more. Next response. We protect the gospel. We protect the gospel. As a member of a, of a church. This goes for any member of any church. You have a responsibility. Uh, you are responsible for gospel preservation. In the church. Okay. When Paul says in Galatians. So we covered Galatians. Uh, I don't know how long ago, but in Galatians 1, he says he was so amazed that they were quickly turning from the gospel. Who's he talking to? He usually come out of the gates and let you know he's talking to the elders or the leaders of a church. But in Galatians, he's talking to the church. He's talking to all of them, to the church as a whole. We have, okay, we, we, we have an obligation to protect and preserve the gospel, which means you have to study and know the gospel. You cannot preserve what you do not know. Okay, the elders are charged with equipping you, but you are charged with checking it, okay, and then guarding it. Our personal Bible study is not just an act of, of, of private enrichment. It's a means of whole church doctrinal fidelity, okay? Your private Bible study is a means of whole church doctrinal fidelity. The person next to you needs you to study the word for the sake of their faith person behind you and in front of you, four rows in front of you, up in the balcony, needs you to study the word for the sake of their faith and the faith of their kids or the faith of your own kids, for the faith of the next generation. Think about how this is connected to our, our first response. How well, okay, how well can you do this, okay, can you protect the gospel if you neglect to assemble? How do you know what the elders are teaching? How do you know if it's off base? Don't assume sound doctrine. Work to guard sound doctrine. If you are not protecting the gospel or guarding sound doctrine, you have little chance to push back on the cultural narratives that are contrary to it. 
All right. It's kind of the, the saying is one way to know that something is false is to know what's true. Okay. It's just one way. Next, and obviously connected to this next response, affirm other members, affirm other members. Um, if you don't believe in church membership, we did a series on that. We got plenty of content. Uh, you can go through the membership class here. You don't have to join. Just go through and see what we're talking about. I can point you to all of that. But the Bible is clear, even at a high level, there's an in and there's an out. That there are distinct bodies of Christians, and we call those local churches. Okay, We see instances in the Bible of Christians being removed from churches. You cannot be removed from something you were not first a part of. And what's interesting and often missed about those instances and the instructions that we are given on how to go about that is that it's the responsibility of the whole church to do this. We deduce from this that since the whole church removes members, it's the whole church's responsibility to affirm or recognize members. So the church doesn't make people Christians. Okay? They recognize as best they can who Christians are. The church is God's mechanism for recognizing who Christians are. We're an outpost of the kingdom. We are like an an embassy. What does an embassy do? It affirms or denies someone's citizenship. And based on scripture, we are going to get this wrong. It's obvious we're going to get this wrong. Church discipline would not exist. Excommunication would not exist if we can do this perfectly. But the fact that we may get it wrong doesn't remove the responsibility to do it. And it's not the sole responsibility of the elders. It's the collective responsibility of the church. That doesn't mean it's practically impossible for every member to affirm every other member at all times. You can't know everyone at the same level. But honestly, in a church this size, there's little excuse for knowing most people at a certain level. You start connecting things together and you see how important working to protect the gospel in others and regularly assembling together is. Those are the means by which we are able to affirm each other. Okay? By protecting the gospel, assembling together. It's really hard to affirm those you never see and those you do little to protect. Membership marks out the community that offers a countercultural community to the world. Okay, we may have a community the world hates, but it's one the world needs to see. I don't, there's no indication that the world loved the Acts 2 community. Just keep flipping the pages. Okay. Wait till the persecution comes. Membership provides a level of protection for us to faithfully carry out the biblical picture of what it means to be a church. Okay, the church already struggles against the dominant cultural narrative, but without the guardrails of membership, we are losing one of the better defenses that we have. Listen to this section from a membership interview from another local church. Friend, by joining this church, you will become jointly responsible for whether or not this congregation continues faithfully to proclaim the gospel. That means you will become jointly responsible both for what this church teaches as well as whether or not its members' lives remain faithful. And one day you will stand before God and give an account for how you use this authority. Will you sit back and stay anonymous, doing little more than passively showing up on Sundays? Or will you jump in with the hard and rewarding work of studying the gospel, building relationships and making disciples? We need more hands for the harvest. So we hope you will join us in this work. Church membership is the responsibility of all and is so much more than just a name on a roll. Next response, and this is this one's so key, we're to disciple one another. Disciple one another. And this is not immediately apparent in Acts 2, but it becomes evident as the New Testament unfolds. 
So I mentioned earlier, what's one of the primary responsibilities of elders in the church, according to Paul in Ephesians 4? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Then what do the saints or Christians or church members do? Paul says they build one another up in love. They speak truth, building one another up, building up the body. Basic Christianity involves building up other believers. That's part of the Great Commission. Okay, we 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 focus all of our energy on either maturing disciples or evangelism, but making disciples per the Great Commission involves both. We see people come to faith and then we teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We mistakenly think sometimes that we should focus on more disciples. That that should be the sole focus, more disciples. But I think scripture should say you need more and you need mature disciples. Because in the long run, better or mature disciples is going to end up with more disciples. Okay, So you need both. You need more and more mature disciples. Why is this so key? Because as Ephesians 4 makes the case... And you think about the argument I'm making against expressive individualism. Here's Paul's argument in Ephesians 4 that this is a guard. Your building up of one another is a guard, as Paul says, against Christians being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So you apply that to my argument. Why do you need to disciple one another so that you're not taken captive and tossed around? By the new dominant cultural narrative. All right, final response for today. Lastly, we should evangelize the lost. Okay, we're ambassadors of Christ. Christ making his appeal through us. We're to plead with others on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Acts 2 doesn't say they were doing this specifically, but it's implied since we know that faith only comes through hearing and hearing by the word of God. And people are being added to this church. So somebody in the church is speaking about Jesus. They're not they're certainly showing it. They're seeing their lifestyle. But somebody's out there saying this is why we are living this way. And the Lord is blessing and adding to their number. And it goes back to what I said about the Great Commission. It's not just about maturing disciples, but making them with the initial step in disciple making being evangelism, because you can't make a disciple without the gospel. God saves through the good news about how Jesus lives, why Jesus died and the fact that Jesus rose. God saves through that his life, death and resurrection in the place of sinners for their salvation. You know, it's it's been daunting for me all week, really, to think about. There's been some moments come up where I had to have conversations about expressive individualism, even though people didn't know that what I was. That's what I was talking about. But it's daunting to think about making disciples in this environment. It's really daunting. If you agree that expressive individualism dominates the landscape and you look at all the ways it manifests itself, you, you just take. Sexuality and gender is just two manifestations and all that's going on there. It seems impossible that people would respond to what we have to say in light of what they believe. The culture says you do what you want and we say God wants you to do what he wants. The culture says you self-identify however you want and we say God has already identified you. The culture says authority is bad and cannot be trusted. And we say God given authority is good. The culture says we are in inherently good 
and our desires are to be fulfilled and, and celebrated. And we say we're inherently depraved and our desires need to be filtered. It's opposing at every level. Every level, there's just opposition between biblical truth and the cultural narrative. But as daunting as it seems, and I mentioned this earlier, let's not assume that the culture behind Acts 2 was just like, Woo, you guys are awesome. Everything you say makes perfect sense. And there's nothing that we believe that's in opposition to that. Whether you're a Jew who could not fathom a crucified Messiah or a Gentile with your pantheon of gods and your embellishing of desires. If God can add to their number and if God can add to numbers throughout history in so many different cultures, then God can add to the church in our day. He can do it in ours. Just never forget, salvation is a supernatural act by where God grants life to a previously dead sinner. Our job is not to save, but to be faithful. We're to be faithful. And yes, in the context we are now living, opposition should be expected. We don't need to sugarcoat that. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat that. But God is not afraid or unable to save in the midst of opposition. Keep following the storyline in Acts and see, see the explosion of the church, the spreading of the church in light of opposition. Okay. The world is telling people what they want to hear. You start to study this and you realize that people are just being affirmed in what they want to hear because they want their desires affirmed. So the church is telling the world what they want to hear, but we possess what they need to hear. Whether they believe it or not. Gospel protection in the church and then gospel propagation beyond the church is the most potent weapon against the dominant cultural viewpoint. To neglect this not only makes the church vulnerable, it leaves the culture without any real lasting hope. To be silent makes the church vulnerable and leaves the culture without hope. All right. Now that everybody's like depressed, um, there's hope. I'm trying to share about hope. Like, look what God did in Acts 2. We have a weapon to fight against this. Okay, so go and study and learn and understand the dynamics behind what's going on, but don't do so without hope. And lean into God's ancient means. Okay, and look for a, look for new means. You you may have to learn about new things and figure out n- nuances of how certain truths apply to certain things, but we don't have to come up with a new plan. God's given us one. All right, so much more to say. Hopefully, this is the beginning. Of the conversation, but let me, you know, I I, kind of clued you in on how I end sermons sometimes. Let me crash the plane, as they say. I want to end with a couple of quotes that I think um, sum up what we've we've covered. Because it may sound laughable. Uh, It may sound laughable to prop up the church as a cure, a treatment, or a weapon against what's going on. But remember, this is God's design, not ours. Okay, this is his wisdom, which kind of thwarts the wisdom of the world. Here's how a couple of authors put it, and we'll close and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper. One author says, the church is imperfect, messy, maddening, and at times mundane. But she is the body of Christ, the organism God has chosen to physically manifest the son of the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. It may not sound exciting. It may seem too predictable and institutional and conventional. It's certainly not going to be comfortable. But committing to your church week after week and giving oneself to the building up of the body is a revolutionary act of mission. And then the follow up quote. 
In the healthy church, the self is minimized and the Savior is magnified. Yes, sin still frustrates and persists, and it will till the Lord returns. But until then, such churches will have a positive influence on a darkening and decaying world. All right, we, we, I didn't necessarily think about the connection, uh, the fact that, talking about the, the breaking of bread in here, but we have a, a chance, okay, today to be reminded of what it took to create the church, okay, that we just looked at, that we got a picture of, and then the description of how we respond. The local church flowed, as I said, from the substitutionary death of Christ. It flowed from his life, death, and resurrection. And this meal is a reminder of that. It's one of the things that marks us off as a church, is a church practice. Us collectively being reminded of Jesus' death in our place. This meal is interesting. It causes us to look in. Okay, It seems like I just told us not to look inward, but we do look in. It causes us to look in. But but to pull us away from ourselves, you look in and see what is running contrary to Christ. And then you look to him toward him. This is what that meal does is what it does. This meal, in a sense, fights against expressive individualism just by the practice itself and what it reminds us of. It says, look in, but then turn and look to Christ. Look in, but turn and look to Christ. Okay, so I'm about to pray for us and then we'll distribute uh, the elements. Let me go ahead and invite those up that are going to be uh, serving. Uh, before we pass these out, let me just offer this instruction. This is a meal reserved for believers. Uh, those that have trusted in, in Jesus, is, if that's not you, grateful that you are here. We'd love to further discuss with anybody, believers and unbelievers, anything that has been discussed today. But uh, if you are not following Christ, not walking in repentance and faith, just let these elements pass. But if you are a follower of Jesus, walking in repentance and faith, uh, join with us as we look in, but then turn and look to Christ and all that he has done for us. So uh, as these go out, uh, after I pray, or just exhort believers, uh, spend time confessing, searching, okay? The myriad of ways in which you've made life all about you, okay? Search that out. Ask the Lord to reveal that and then take it and turn toward Christ and say, you gave your life as a ransom for me. You set the example of how I'm to love God and love others So let's do that now. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we're thankful for your word and your church in light of what your word has said about your church. Uh, We pray in light of a culture that seems to be pressing in around us, that in so many ways has infiltrated us, our hearts and our membership and how it affects our individual lives and our corporate lives. We, We praise you for reminders about What you have given us, the ancient means that you have given us to be faithful to you and to lead a life that is about flourishing. You care about our happiness and our flourishing, but the definition of that looks so much different than the culture around us. So, Father, would you you help us to grasp eternal truth that comes from you and not internal subjective truth? Help us to celebrate what you have to say and not what our desires are saying that are contrary to you. So help us to be faithful. Remind us now of the faithfulness of Jesus as we remember this, what he has given us in his shed blood and his broken body on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.